when there is a dog bite, is this is this a case that you primarily just take to the insurance, or is this something that is worthwhile consulting an attorney? Oh, gosh. Well, it, I think it's generally, I, I mean, I always say consult with an attorney because, you know what, if you consult with an attorney, you can always decide not to hire them and to, and to handle it on your own, but yeah. getting more information. And again, the laws in different states are different. Um, and we were talking about like Arizona has a strict liability, mm-hmm. but some states don't. Some states, it's, it's more of a negligent standard. And so then it's, did you know, or should you have known that your dog it was vicious. It was yeah. a vicious animal. And so, and that, it, you know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we call that the one free bite rule. Yeah. And so that means that, you know, until the dog bites the first time, you don't know your dog's a biter and you don't know your dog's dangerous. Interesting. So, so in some states, dogs get that one free bite yeah. and then, you know. They get the, and the worst part is they get the taste for blood at that point. <laughs> so then they're just absolutely loose, wild. Prioritizing profits. Prioritizing Prioritizing Dangerous pro- drug and product cases. Welcome, everyone. Another episode of Prioritizing Profits, Dangerous Drugs, and Products. Got that Prioritizing right? Prioritizing pro- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Prioritizing Profits, Dangerous Drug and Product Cases. And Product Cases. Boom. That's what we do. Dangerous yes. Drug and Product Cases. You'd think I'd have an idea of what we're doing at this point, but honestly, I just show up and start talking. <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. Um, well, I have some surprises for you in here today, so that's good. I'm looking forward to I it. I like to keep you on your toes. I know. I, you know, it might be surprising. I have no idea what we're talking about every time I come onto this show. You give me some quick bullet points. I read through it. I don't even read it fully through it. I just kind of see the first few and then kind of <laughs> hop into it and go with it as we, as we figure it out. Um, real quick, though, we are recording this early because you will be going on a trip to Australia. I am. Actually, when we release this, I will be in Australia, and not just Australia, but Tasmania. Holy. Crazy, huh? Yeah, I hear there's a lot of devils out there. (laughs) The Tasmanian devils? Yeah. I'm pretty excited. I hope I see one of those. Um, But definitely some kangaroos. I've heard they have, like, spiders the size of dinner plates and things like that. Yeah, I I, I don't think I could ever go to Australia. It sounds like a beautiful, awesome place. I'm sure it's great, but... My God, when you see the dangers of nature and, and natural life there, it is terrifying. Really? Well, maybe I haven't researched this enough. I think I'm not going to look. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like, it's mostly, I think, like the bug species. I mean, the bug, like you said, the spiders and the snakes. And I mean, I guess snakes, not bugs, but the spiders and other, you know, little critters like that. Absolutely massive. I mean, it's like, you know, they came out of Chernobyl and they're triple the size they should be. Okay. You know, I really didn't know this. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, shout out to uh, Rachel and Linda. I'm like, very excited to come and, and see you guys in person. Um, yeah, so hopefully I'm, I'm not going to be at significant risk of death or dismemberment by any of this wildlife. Um, but, I, but I do have to say that we'll, now that one of the areas that we're going to be staying in, and this is Rachel's home, it's called Penguin. Penguin. Yes. So it's a town called Penguin on the beach. And they're known for their cute little Australian blue penguins. That was my guess. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know they were blue. I didn't know or they were blue. They were little. Uh, yeah, true, true. Well, most penguins are pretty little. I don't think I've seen a, a monster-sized one. But if there's any place there would be an oversized penguin, it's probably Australia. Probably in Penguin, Australia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I suspect that once I start posting and sending you pictures, you're going to want to go to Australia. And I'll be happy to go back. 
Um, although I'm going to try to convince Rachel and uh, Linda to come visit Arizona after after this trek. So mm. we'll see about that. Oh, maybe, maybe. If it's a cruise where I can find sanctuary in the night and I don't have to worry about the... <laughs> about, about spiders crawling up on me while I sleep, but we should we should go ahead and hop into the episode here. All right, okay, work work before play. Yeah, got uh, it. Starting as we always do, interesting cases. Um, you know, I, we've had some good ones so far, and this is honestly my favorite part because I feel like there's so many interesting small little cases that go on that don't lead to necessarily massive cases or things that we personally handle, but something that is you know commonly affects probably more people than than you'd expect. Yeah. Well, and actually, uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I mean, I'm on all of these listservs and, and I, you know, scour the news for these types of cases. Um, and, and a lot of these things, again, they might not be dangerous drug or product cases, but they generally will involve a lawsuit one way or the other. And often, and pretty much almost always, it involves a personal injury. So again, that is a case that um, we or other attorneys could, could handle. Um, but the first one that we're going to jump into actually is near and dear to um, our hearts and, and all dog lovers' hearts. Um, although it's not necessarily on the positive side of dog ownership. And that is um, that they just recently released an update on dog-related injuries. This was by an, that came out through the insurance industry. And so um, they were talking about how claims for dog bites have increased significantly. Um, so we have the stats now from 2022. And insurers paid out more than $1 billion wow. in dog-related injuries in 2022. Jesus. That's a lot of, that's a lot of money for, for misbehaving canines. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so that was like a 28% increase over the past year, over 2021. Um, the interesting thing about this, though, is that the number of claims decreased slightly, but the amount of money that they paid out went up significantly. Um, and they don't address exactly why that is. So I'm not sure if the injuries were more serious or if it's kind of like cost of living increase, cost of medical expense increase that, yeah. the, the, you know, that the treatment was, uh, was, was significantly higher. Yeah, my first guess was kind of going to the severity of it, but... Um, why are dogs more vicious now? I mean, what, what, you know, is this like global warming or something? Is like, you know, I mean, what's going on? Why are dogs biting harder or more causing more damage? Yeah. Well, and then you mentioned that kind of like overall prices, inflation are, is going up. So maybe that has a, a piece in it as well. And I'm assuming the emotional distress has to play a role into, into dog attacks as well. I mean, that is terrifying. Have you been attacked by dogs? No, but I mean, I've watched, I've watched a <laughs> lot of, curious. you know, like cop or like drug TV shows where they just sick the German shepherds out and they're just, uh -huh. I mean, they're full on hunters. They're hunting down yeah, they're these criminals. They're taking you down. And yeah. Absolutely. I could not imagine. I mean, the way they leap and just grab on and never let go. Yeah. That I would be scarred for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, and those guys are specifically trained to take down the perpetrator, yeah. um, to stop you, that sort of thing. Um, but, and, and these claims of course are, are going to be related to household pets. Um, and generally, you know, I've had people ask me, well, how, you know, I, I was bitten by a dog, but, you know, the, the dog owner doesn't have a lot of money. I mean, mm -hmm. how do I get paid for this? How do I get my medical bills um, taken care of, that sort of thing? And it's generally a homeowner's policy. So if the person owns their home, um, they, of course, have to have a, a, insurance. And that would generally be included under that policy. Mm. 
There's also, of course, renter's policies. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, if somebody's renting, they might have a renter's policy, and that would cover the injuries. Um, but, you know, you're not required to have renter's insurance, and so a lot of people people don't have that coverage. Yeah, and I remember when, when we got Bruno, or when I got Bruno, we got him a dog's license. And does that play a role into anything? Because I know if, if there's any issues with your dog and they're not licensed, then there could be some big problems there as well. Well, I think that's, that's, that's more of an administrative, and you would get a fine. Uh, um, but, yeah, I, I, and a lot of people, I guess, don't keep their dogs licensed. I didn't uh, know it was a thing, honestly, until you you told me about it. Until I licensed your dog. <laughs> yeah, I have no clue. <laughs> and then I said, hey, Ben, I need the updated rabies shot because we're renewing the license on Bruno. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, so that's a, a, really a separate issue. Um, but the types, and, and over the years, I've handled a number of dog bite cases. And like you said, I mean, they can be really traumatic. Um, and generally speaking, they, um, I mean, a lot of times it's children. Yeah. You know, I mean, and as you would imagine, and children kind of. Easy prey. <laughs> closer to the size, easier to take down. Yeah. It's just an easy, quick meal. <laughs> <laughs> Snack. Yeah, no. Um, the, the thing, I guess, about children is that, that um, and I noticed this, uh, actually, in October, we had family visiting um, and a couple of young children, and kids just say they, they move faster. They're more erratic. Um, yeah. And I think it, that it kind of makes a dog more a little bit more nervous. But really, the injuries tend to be, you know, the, the, a child comes into somebody's home and, oh, doggy, and they want to go pet the doggy. Um, and, and and then they can kind of, you know, pull on the ears, pull on the tail. So one of the, um, generally speaking, well, and actually, I should get into this, like different states, of course, have different laws with mm -hmm. regard to um, with dog, right, dog bites and the responsibility of owners for injuries caused by dog bites. Um, and there are some states where um, it's called a strict liability, and that would be Arizona. Mm -hmm. So in Arizona, if your dog bites somebody, you are strictly liable. You're automatically liable, no questions asked. Yeah. Um, there is, of course, one defense, and that is provocation. Mm -hmm. So if you provoke the dog... Yeah. then um, that could decrease your injuries or you might not even be able to, depending on what you did, of course, you might not even be able to collect for it. So if you come in and you just start messing with somebody's dog and harassing yeah. it and it bites you, well, it probably should have bit you. Well, I would imagine it would be, you know, it would probably play into self-defense as well. You know, I, that's like a lot of the... The dog is defending itself? You know, well, not defending <laughs> no, it itself. Is. Defending its owner, you know, like that, uh -huh. that's what I would assume a lot of dog uh, bites come from is where the dog thinks the owner's threatened. And then, you know, that's when they get really vicious as well. Right, right. Uh, but w when there is a dog bite, is this, is this a case that you primarily just take to the insurance or is this something that is worthwhile consulting an attorney? Oh, gosh. Well, it, I think it's generally, I, I mean, I always say consult with an attorney because you know what, if you consult with an attorney, you can always decide not to hire them and to, and to handle it on your own, but yeah. getting more information. And again, the laws in different states are different. Um, and we were talking about like Arizona has a strict liability, mm -hmm. but some states don't. Some states, it's, it's more of a negligent standard. And so then it's, did you know, or should you have known that your dog was vicious. It was yeah. a vicious animal. And so, and that, you know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we call that the one free bite rule. Yeah. And so that means that, you know, until the dog bites the first time, you don't know your dog's a biter and you don't know your dog's dangerous. Interesting. So, so in some states, dogs get that one free bite yeah. and then, the, you know. They get the, and the worst part is they get the taste for blood at that point. <laughs> so then they're just absolutely loose, wild. Well, all right. Let's not get crazy. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. No, but, yeah. um, well, I mean, I think it's really interesting because, I mean, 
I, I used to take Bruno to, to the dog park a lot, and I, I used to think it was such a great opportunity to socialize him with other dogs. Uh, but I quickly realized after, you know, a few times there that uh, not everyone, not everyone's dogs is as well behaved as Bruno. Oh, yeah. And, and there's a lot of dogs that even if they are well behaved, once they're out there, they're playing, they're going back and forth. I mean, things can kind of get out of hand pretty quickly. And uh, it, it's hard to predict that. Right. Well, and and sometimes, you know, again, a dog is just playing. And as part of the play, dogs bite each other. I mean, generally not viciously, but they bite each other during play. And if you're playing with a dog, the dog may bite you again, thinking it's play, but you know, that you you could break the skin, it could injure you. Um, So it could be pretty serious. And, and, you know, one of the things you, well, you had asked about um, whether you should get in touch with an attorney. And, you know, I think we're thinking of kind of minor injuries, but some of the cases that I've seen have been pretty significant. Um, And again, children tend to be um, the ones that are bitten most often. And you see a lot of children getting bitten in the face. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're down there. They have their face right up in the dog's face. And they think that it's all fun and games. And they've seen cartoons of Bluey or whoever. And, you know, and, and, and they're messing with the dog and the dog snaps and bites them. And, um, I mean, some serious facial injuries requiring cosmetic surgery. Um, there was actually a case recently in the news, um, and I had forgotten about this when I was, was, uh, thinking about talking about this, but it was actually a model and she, and I don't remember if it was her boyfriend or her friend's home, but, um, the dog jumped at her and bit her entire top lip off. And, of course, they, they went to the emergency room immediately and took it with them, but um, they were unable to reattach it. Mm-hmm. And so she was completely disfigured. And this was a woman who was a model who yeah. was making her living, um, you know, through her appearance. Um, I believe she was also, like, maybe, like, a skateboard star. I'm trying to remember the details on this. I think it was a lot of social media. Um, and actually, if you check, I know it was, like, on TikTok and some of the sites, but she... Um, went through this process of showing the photographs as she went along through her recovery. Wow. Um, and of course she had to heal up and then she had cosmetic surgery to, to try to kind of rebuild her, her face. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so it can be just, I mean, horrendous, horrendous injuries. And, and I know that there's such thing as like lost wages, but usually, you know, I'm familiar with that in car crashes where, uh, you know, you don't have access to your car and then you have to lose or you're injured and you lose uh, work time. But for something like that, where it's affecting your livelihood, I mean, it's not necessarily uh, she has to take a few weeks off. It's, you know, she's probably not going to be a model anymore. Right. And yeah, and that's just something, you know, again, all of these cases are very individual and you look at that specific person's injuries. And so somebody whose appearance really makes a big difference Mm -hmm. is going to have significantly more injuries in in that, uh, you know, in that area. But even aside from the loss of earnings, I mean, this is that what that situation is, you know, multiple surgery after surgery, and you're going to have downtime and recuperation time, whatever your job is. Um, And then just the emotional distress. Um, I mean, you know, facial injuries are horrible and any type of, um, of accident or injury, um, you know, and then you like the, what, these children, I mean, they're, they're, they're young children. And I mean, you know how, I mean, I guess it's difficult everywhere, but I mean, you go to school and you have this mm-hmm. facial scarring and, you know, even with treatment, um, I mean, we've had cases, I mean, they'll have permanent scarring, even yeah. if they don't have, you know, like total, you know, losing a lip or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, so, so different states have different, um, rules and, um, and again, you, oftentimes you wouldn't know if somebody has insurance coverage or not. Mm. And there's always weird issues too. Like a dog is at somebody else's house. Um, you know, and so generally it's going to be, at least in Arizona, it's going to go back to that dog owner. Mm. 
Um, but then, you know, I've had cases where we've tried to figure out, okay, well, was there negligence on the person who, you know, maybe it was dog sitting or the dog was visiting there and was it somehow, you know, did they contribute to the situation that caused the injury? So those kinds of situations, it's, you know, it's, um, it's, it's always best to talk to somebody. And Yeah, and I, and I think this is probably, this is definitely an unrelated question, but it, it came up this week because I was, you know, doing my random, just going through YouTube, going down to rabbit holes. And I saw a clip that I've seen in the past, and it was of a chimpanzee attack victim. Oh, gosh. That, and that was on Oprah Winfrey. Horrible story. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, again, kind of unrelated, but is there any type of similar similarity there? Because they're both pets, even though one is an exotic pet. Um, but, you know, if it's a let go or if it gets out of the cage and, and just causes serious damage like that. No, absolutely. And again, that would go to the homeowners. And mm -hmm. so a household pet is generally going to be covered. But that's it's a good topic, a good issue that you bring up because there are some insurance companies now that will not write a policy or that will exclude injuries if you have a certain type of dog yeah, that's like considered a dangerous and... dog. Yeah, and pit bulls are always the ones that get all of the flack. You know, and the sad thing is that, that pit bulls, you know, I, I, I read somewhere that, that they, the reason they're not police dogs is because it's really hard to train them to attack people. Really? Yeah. That's terrible. But, I mean, oh, if you... It's such a terrible that they have such a bad rap then. <laughs> well, it's terrible. That it, yeah, it's this unearned, you know. Uh, but the thing is that they are very strong dogs. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, if you think like the whole term pit bull, I mean, you know, and, and back to the Michael Vick case and everything, I mean, these dogs, horrible people would train them to fight to the death mm -hmm. for people to bet on. Um, so they would be trained from puppyhood to be vicious. Yeah. Um, but again, even in those scenarios, the training was to kill the other dog as opposed to attack humans. Although once you, you know, start, God knows what they do to them. But I mean, the training and probably, you know, I don't know Traumatic. if they're doing steroids or, or, or other things along those lines, whatever they're doing to make them actually more, more vicious. So they've gotten a, certainly a bad rap. But actually on the list of the dangerous dogs that are generally um, an issue... Um, there's, uh, it's not just the pit bulls, um, the Kitas, uh, Alaskan Malamutes, any wolf breeds, which yeah. kind of makes sense. I mean, kind of, kind of goes to your wild animal thing. Chow Chows, Doberman Pinchers, German Shepherds. I mean, you know, and again, those are kind of the classic police dogs, yeah. um, where they train, uh, let's see, well, pit bulls are on there, Great Danes, Rottweilers, um, Huskies, and Staffordshire Terriers, which are kind of similar to the, the pit bulls. Um, I was quite happy to see that there were no cattle dogs or Pekingese Chihuahua mixes on the uh, list. He's a German Shepherd uh, Chihuahua <laughs> mix. So he's only half as vicious. We're going to have to show a picture of Bruno on here because, yeah, I remember when you got Bruno, you came and he was a little puppy. Um, and I think you got him off of Craigslist or something. Yeah, well, okay, hold on. Let me preface this. Okay, I am a strong believer in, in buying and in shelter dogs for sure. But, you know, I was young in college and I really had this vision of, um, you know, getting a, a puppy, getting a puppy, which is definitely very hard in, in shelters. And so this Bruno had been adopted from the shelter and that the, the owners didn't want him anymore, I guess. And so I adopted him or got him from Craigslist, but they got him from a shelter. So I'd like to say transitive property. I adopted him from a shelter, but they did tell me when I picked him up, German Shepherd Chihuahua, which at the time, I mean, I, I kind of believed it. I mean, he was a very small dog for sure. He was like, uh, he's pretty young, two, three months. 
um, less than 10 pounds, around 10 pounds, and but his paws were massive. He, yeah, they still are. They still they are. Like... Massive paws. I mean, bigger than your dogs, and they're, wow. uh, they're on par. <laughs> <laughs> and, and had the same colors of a German Shepherd and had tiny, it was small, but also had the, the apple head that a lot of chihuahuas will, will have. Um, so I was fully convinced until did a little bit more research, and it makes, makes more sense for him to be a Pekingese chihuahua. Yeah, well, and he just did not get the size either. I mean, yeah. like 20, 20, 25 pounds um, yeah. and short little legs. I mean, he's adorable. He's the cutest dog ever. Um, I still like telling people that he was a German, that he's a German Shepherd Chihuahua because you always just get, what? No. Who was the mom? Who was the dad? I can't even imagine. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. Every time. And I just say, leave it up to your imagination. I don't know, you know. Well, you get a lot of attention from that dog. You always <laughs> have. I think it's one of his selling points. Yeah. 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 No, he's, he's, a, he's a good dog. Yeah. So, um, and, and our dogs are crazy nutcases, although they're not biters, but they are jumpers and barkers and all of that. And they, they, they seem very intimidating, which I guess is good. Intimidating, you know, all the, all the bark without the bite. They don't need a bite if they're that intimidating. Yeah. If they just keep people away, which they probably, they probably do. Well, at least with the lockdown, people had more time to train their dogs. So maybe that might <laughs> In theory, although if you, my dogs would not be a prime example of that. <laughs> well, actually there's training that happened. Um, the actual success success of the training, I guess, is more yeah, of an the, issue. The reception and maintaining of that <laughs> is, it might be a different story. For sure, there. for sure. So another case that's in the news right now that I thought was um, particularly interesting is a recall of sledgehammers. Interesting. Right? Um, and it's, I mean, basically, what is a sledgehammer? It's like two pieces, right? Yeah, how, it, it, I just can't imagine that being a very complicated process or item. Well, it's like, yeah, it's got like the handle and the big hard. Sledge. <laughs> the sledge. The sledge and the hammer. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so the crazy thing about these, though, is that they're detaching. So people are sledgehammering things. Yeah. Um, I've never used one. I've used a hammer many, many times, but not a sledgehammer. It sounds like they're just, you know, I mean, they're bigger, they're bulkier. We'll, we'll put up a... Um, uh, a picture of these things. Um, but what's happening is that the head is coming off. Wow. And as you can imagine, you're working away at this and the head goes flying. Well, where does it yeah. fly? Probably back at you. Back into your head sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So there've been some pretty serious injuries, um, hence the recall. Um, the product are the DeWalt, Stanley, and Craftsman sledgehammers. And there's um, about 2.2 million of these things out there. The actual um, recall says that they... Uh, the head of the sledgehammer can loosen prematurely and detach unexpectedly during use, posing an impact injury hazard to the user. Impact injury. Well, and I, I have used a sledgehammer before. You have. I have. I was I was pretty young. It was when uh, we were doing some remodeling at my dad's house, and oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I got got to use a little bit. Very heavy items. Very difficult to use. You got to be a big guy to be throwing that type of weight around, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you are throwing it down with a lot of force. And even though it is heavy, I'm assuming, you know, depending on the material too, if it, that thing just goes flying off with the amount of force that it's coming at it, like it can, it can get some good air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I actually, I think I might have used a sledgehammer because as you said that I did help with some remodeling. Um, but I should say that I didn't help with the remodeling. I helped with the destruction, destruction. It yeah. sounded like it was kind of fun to tear down some walls. And, and I, so I assume I probably did use a sledgehammer for that. Um, you know, and I, I don't know how 
common it is to use these things, but there's obviously a lot of them out there, 2.2 million of these specific ones that are recalled. Um, these are things that are available, Home Depot, Ace, Amazon, mm-hmm. um, all, all over the country. And um, like I said, there have been, uh, it looks like 192 reports of, of this happening with injuries. Um, so if you have one of these things, again, um, you know, you can get a refund, go back to the store, um, contact the manufacturer, a couple of options on that. Um, but, you know, take a look at what you're, you're using because it's pretty, that's pretty scary. And is there a specific brand? Because I know with the other recalls, like, for example, the strawberries, it was a farm and there was a variety of different brands that those strawberries could be in. Is that something similar here with where the people producing these sledgehammers for several different brands? Yeah. So they are, are, there are three different actual brands that are involved. It's DeWalt. Stanley and Craftsman, mm-hmm. and um, and again, I'm not like a big tool person, but I've heard of all of those names. So it sounds like you know some yeah. of the bigger ones. And then there are a bunch of different models within those brands, um, and certainly too many for us to just list here. Um, we may be able to put up a graphic on that. Um, but again, if you have you know one of those brands, take a look. Um, you know you can go to uh, the the uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission website. They have a listing. Um, make sure that the one that you're using does, is not one of these recalled because it sounds, I mean, it sounds like they're pretty horrendous injuries. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, like I said, it's a lot of weight to be thrown yeah. back at you. But, you know, I would, my first guess is I'm sure there is a lot of personal use for sledgehammers, but, but <laughs> the most common use I would have to guess is in construction and like construction companies and day-to-day work. So what does that look like if, if there's something, you know, your company purchases sledgehammers, you're going to work one day, you start using it, and then it goes flying off the rails and and, and you get injured. Is that a workman's comp? You know, what is it? Is it still connected to the manufacturer? How does that all work? Wow, that's like an excellent question. I'm like totally impressed. I mean, you're getting this shit. <laughs> that's, my, that's my job. <laughs> I know, but you're doing it so well. Yeah, actually, so that's a great question. And if you are using a product and you get hurt on the job, you would be eligible, as long as you're in the course and scope of your employment, you're mm-hmm. eligible to collect workers' compensation benefits. Now, workers', workers compensation benefits can be rather limited, and they don't include all of the areas of compensation compensation that you would in a regular personal injury case. Mm-hmm. So there's also what's called like third party liability. If you have, if, if the fault, if, if the person or company that caused your injury is not your employer and it's not a coworker, so it's a third party. So in this case, it would be like the manufacturer yeah. of one of these sledgehammers. Then you can actually bring a case against that company separately. And that would be outside of the workers' comp system. So you would actually go to a regular personal injury attorney. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of double dip here where you got the workman's comp and then also the individual case with the third party. So it's actually it actually won't end up being a double dip because what happens is if you do through the third party, they, you then have to pay back workers' comp. Oh. Well, workers' comp shouldn't have had to pay for this because it's a third party that's at fault, right? It's yeah, a third party that yeah. caused the injury, not the employer. So, I mean, it, it, it's fair. It's, it's fair, it's, but I mean, hey, I, I don't like to give money back, you know. If I got a little <laughs> bit in my pocket, shit, I want to keep that. Well, and, and again, you're going to be compensated for many more areas than you are mm-hmm. through the workers' comp. I mean, you're going to get pain and suffering and, and, and more substantial damages than you would through the workers' comp system. So it's still going to be far better for you mm-hmm. to go ahead and bring 
this third party claim, even though you do have to reimburse workers. And, and it would, I'm assuming the third party claim would probably take longer as well. So the workman's comp is something where, I mean, that happens and you need, you know, medical attention, you have immediate time off, you have bills that you need to pay. The workman's comp is good for that kind of in the moment. Yeah. But when you really want to get the full scope of it, um, the third party it seems like the move long term. And then even though you have to pay it back, you're still overall big picture getting more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, but for the workers comp, I mean, you're going to get it, be getting paid for your lost wages as you're going along, as you're losing the wages, as opposed to waiting till the end of the case and getting yeah. paid back when you're suffering all that time without, without the income. Um, and you're going to be getting your medical treatment um, <clears throat> probably through workers comp doctors um, and through the system, but you're going to be getting that medical care without having to worry about out of pockets for that um, mm -hmm. and then pay it back at a later time. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, you know, along with kind of the recall situation, I know you mentioned the air fryer. You want to make sure it's not in use anymore. And the air fryer, you get to cut a simple cord, sledgehammer. I'd imagine destroying that's going to be more difficult. Maybe not if it, if the head just falls right off. <laughs> it's but, destroyed. Uh, you know, is that something where you, super glue it back on. you can go back to the store? Again, you have to go to the manufacturer, kind of tell them about it. Either one. You could take Either it back one. to the store and the mm -hmm. store will then return it to the manufacturer or you could send it directly to the manufacturer. Again, it's probably easier to do it um, just taking it back to the store. Um, and just one more thing I wanted to throw in on the workers' comp, the third-party case, um, because because there is a third-party case, the time frame for you to bring your lawsuit is usually much shorter. Uh -huh. So, for, in a, for example, in Arizona, we normally would have two years. Uh -huh. It's actually one year for the workers' comp. So, and the reason for that is that you, you can bring your claim up until the one year, and then after that one year, it's now your claim now belongs to the workers' comp carrier that paid you for your injuries. So, in theory, the workers' comp carrier could sue the manufacturer to get oh, paid back directly wow. for what they've paid out. Huh. Um, yeah. And so you, sometimes you can do it after the one year, but you have to then ask the carrier for what we call a reassignment of the claim. Mm -hmm. you're, you're asking for that claim back to you. Um, and sometimes the carriers are happy to do that because they're going to gain in the end. They're going to get that money back that they paid without having to go and file this lawsuit themselves. Do all the legwork. Right. They're saying, basically, you went and you got a lawyer. Yeah. You want to go get the money for you and for them, and they just have to give you the right to go do that back. Yeah. So, so again, if, if you've passed, and that's Arizona law, and different states have different laws, um, but, you know, if you think you might have passed that first time frame, it still is worth consulting with somebody um, to find out if you could still pursue the case. <clears throat> and I think this is a good leeway into something that you mentioned to me earlier, which was a question that you had received or that you had thought about, about, um, you know, payment towards lawyers, you know, why is it that they get the percentages that they get? Um, and I know, I don't know, I mean, maybe this is a good a question as well, is is the percentages difference depend, different depending on the type of case, you know, mass torts compared to PI injury or, you know, they're both PI injury, but car crashes or workman's comp or disabilities, you know, all of that, you know, what do the percentages and, and lawyer fees look like across right. the board there? Yeah. I mean, that's actually a question that I, that I've had so many times over the years is, you know, how much are you getting paid? Well, obviously you're telling them when you consult with, when you go through the consultation, what your fees are, but why is it this much? And why should you get, you know, this much money? I'm the one who got hurt, that sort of thing. Um, and, and, um, you know, this goes back to really why we even have contingency fees. Um, you know, historically, people had to pay lawyers by the hour. And 
that can be very difficult for somebody who doesn't have a lot of cash on hand to start paying hourly fees. So the contingency process, it basically allows somebody to go into an attorney and get the help that they need without any money out of pocket at all and, and no risk because if the case is not successful, mm -hmm. then they don't have to pay anything. So it really opened up um, the availability of legal services to a whole group of people that that could never have accessed a lawyer in the past, yeah. just realistically. Um, and then from the lawyer's perspective, um, I mean, there's kind of there there's there's some checks and balances in place as well because a, a, an attorney knows, okay, here's this case. I'm going to represent this person. Um, they have serious injuries. Um, but how confident am I that this is a strong case that we will recover for this person? Because if we get zero, um, I'm going to put in all of this time and effort yeah. and I will get paid zero. Um, so this, you know, a lot of people think, oh, there's all these frivolous lawsuits. Well, frivolous lawsuits are, are, are filed by stupid attorneys who won't be in business law because they're going <laughs> to be bankrupt. Um, but but then there's also costs that are um, you know, that are necessary to file a lawsuit. There's always a filing fee with the court mm -hmm. um, if you have to hire expert witnesses. I mean, even down to silly things like obtaining medical records. Oh, but that those can, are expensive. They can be really expensive, yeah. and that that's kind of become big business for some. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's companies that you know the the, the doctors don't like doctors offices don't want to go and copy all these records. That's a pain in their butt. They want to, you know, cure disease and save lives, right? So they want to, you know, farm this out. And then these companies just charge an arm and a leg for them. Um, and again, those, those are costs that are coming out of the attorney's pocket. Mm -hmm. And if they're successful, then they're going to get reimbursed for those costs. Generally, most fee agreements do say that even if the case is not successful, you would still be on the, you know, responsible to reimburse the costs, although you don't have to pay them up front. Well, normally the fee agreements say this. However, in reality, I have never chased somebody down for costs. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it's not going to be worth the, the time and the effort and the likelihood of recovery is, is relatively low. Um, so, so for that fee, I mean, the, the attorney is basically in it with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are, you know, sharing in the upside and the downside. Yeah. And it, it actually makes it, you know, it, it is in the attorney's best interest to get as much money for you as they possibly can, because again, their fee is going to be a percentage of, of what the attorney recovers for the person. Yeah. And I think there's a, several different angles you can kind of look at it there where, like you mentioned, there are people that can't afford kind of that upfront payment and that even if they have a fantastic case, even if there's everything there that it needs to be there, if you don't have that upfront uh, money, then you just are kind of shit out of luck, which shouldn't mm -hmm. be how it is. So adding those kind of uh, fee agreements after the fact, it seems important for that. Um, not only that, but also, like you said, the interests uh, align, right? Because, you know, obviously, everyone wants their money quickly. Um, if a lawyer is getting paid by the hour, you could make the assumption that they want to take as long as possible, right? <laughs> Some of the other side, the defense attorneys on the other side, they're getting paid by the hour. I'm not saying anything about that except for what you're saying about yeah that. i mean th there is an argument there and especially with you know pi injury i've seen when i was looking at working at um pincus you know everyone wants their money so quickly and they want that reimbursement for for damages for for injuries whatever it is which makes sense but so do the lawyers because i mean that is the only time that they're going to get paid or eventually when they get paid is going to be the same day same time well i think the interests are aligned of course and i mean we always want our clients to be happy and clients who get their compensated faster are generally happier but you also have to realize that the insurance companies can be very difficult and fight oh, these yeah. things very hard and there may be a liability issue it may not be clear that mm -hmm. that there's going to be a 
success. And so the, there may not be an offer. And so oftentimes, and I've had this discussion many, many times with clients is, you know, they're offering X number of dollars right now. And this is not a fair, this is not a fair compensation for your injuries. However, to get more, we are going to have to file the lawsuit. We're going to have to go to arbitration, go to trial, whatever next step that might be. Um, and it's always going to be up to the client to decide, mm-hmm. you know, do I want to have, you know, the guaranteed payout right this minute that's less? Do I want to take some risks and and, and take more time um, and, and go forward? And that's, um, that is the client's decision. Um, you know, certainly there are occasions we've all heard of where attorneys are pressuring the client one way or the other for whatever you know, their interests are, but ultimately the client gets to make that call. Yeah. And something that I I actually also thought of is, you know, speaking of the medical bills and the cost of even requesting them. I mean, I remember single documents would be like 50 or a hundred dollars, like some absurd amount. And I know that there's, if, if the case goes through, there is reimbursement there, but are you getting reimbursed off of your percentage or is it being taken like the cost of working the case being taken out of the client's percentage? So it's generally, and again, some states do this a little bit differently, um, or allow different arrangements. Um, but generally, it is out of the client's um, portion. And that is because when the, the attorney takes on the case, their fee, so basically for their time and their energy as a percentage of what they're going to recover, and then it's the out-of-pocket. So for example, I mean, if a client wants to pay those costs as they go along, absolutely, they can do that. Uh, I've never met a client who said, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. They would prefer that I go ahead and pay those costs. Now, and, and sometimes the costs can be really significant. Some of these mass torts cases, when they get remanded, just to get them to trial, you're looking at $250,000, $500,000 sometimes. Jesus. I mean, you have witnesses in other countries, you have travel expenses, all of these, maybe a little less in post-COVID and all of the Zoom stuff. Um, but that's, it's a lot of money. And, and there are sometimes firms that um, can't, don't, don't, don't have that kind of money just in their coffers to put up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so oftentimes firms will have either credit lines, you know, like a cost credit line, that sort of thing. And then they're potentially even incurring interest on those costs. So, um, but again, it, that is the cost. Um, it's the client's cost and it does get paid back out of the, um, end settlement. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and I mean, I can kind of understand the confusion there as well, because I mean, there's so much work going on. And I, I mean, I remember I was originally confused about it as well, right? Because um, it, when a case comes in, you don't you, you have an idea if it's going to be good, you don't know the, all the costs that are going to be associated. And you really are kind of taking on a, a massive risk with if it doesn't work out, if the case just ends up not being as good as you think it's going to be, or if just the fees are, even if it is a good case, the fees can just be, a, you know, very heavy until that time comes until payday time comes. Yeah, yeah, it's just a debt you got to put on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can and, and, and you can end up paying a lot of interest on those costs. Sometimes some firms do pass that interest on to the clients. Um, you know, one of the other things as far as whether the, the costs come out of the attorneys or the clients, I did have a case where I was co-counsel with an out-of-state attorney. And in that state, they did have the costs come out of the attorney's percentage. So they started with a higher percentage, but they paid the costs. And that was the first time I had seen that. And I saw a really big problem with that, too, because what then happens is that now all of a sudden it's in the attorney's interest to have the lowest cost possible. And this was a situation where we needed some really expensive expert witnesses. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to, you know, you have an expert doctor who's going to talk about the injuries and the permanency and all of this, who charges $5,000, but holy 
holy crap, they're going to be the most amazing witness. And, you know, or you can get one for, you know, $2,000. You know, you're kind of you're 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 putting that that, the, that all of a sudden the the attorney's interest and the client's interest may not align. I mean, it should be something that gets discussed. And and, and oftentimes I do have clients say to me, "Hey, how much are these costs going to be?" And I will over a certain dollar amount, I will discuss with the client. Yeah. So you could give the client that option. You know, I really think that we should use this witness. This is how much it's going to cost. Um, but you know, you've got to make a, a good strong case, or you're all going to get nothing. Yeah, and I think this kind of brings up an, a separate point, but the, the something that I also thought was really interesting when I first learned about it is the value of expert witnesses and how different expert witnesses mm. can be worth different amounts. Yeah. And also on top of that is how previous cases that they were expert witnesses can be brought into court. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, you hear these horror stories of, you know, witnesses that are essentially just kind of being snuck money under the table to say whatever. And they're just kind of you know, they, they, they'll, they'll say whatever for, for money and then they get brought into a case and that can be brought up later if, you know, their their testimony was clearly just a little off or yeah. wrong at times. Well, absolutely. And that all that goes to the bias. So a jury always gets to determine whether any witness is biased and particularly an expert witness. And so in a lot of like if you use the standard car accident and you might have like an accident reconstructionist and you have one on each side. Um, and or and, and then also um, like IME independent medical exam doctors who are not independent we call them defense medical examiners but where where the other side the defense has um, a doctor that they pay examine the patient to see if they're really injured or what mm -hmm. their opinion is and you know it's interesting too because these expert witnesses it's it's big business I mean they're getting paid thousands of dollars an hour at trial um, for depositions for prep time and so I mean it's it's like their career. And so, you know, you'll have these ones that are well-known and, you know, we can call them like defense whores and sorry, but, you know, basically you pay and they'll, they'll bend over for you, right? They'll say whatever you want to say for the right amount of money. Wow. And that's why it's really important that, that either side gets to bring up past, um, past testimony because, you know, one of the standard questions is how many times have you testified, Dr. X? 4,000. How many times have you testified for a plaintiff? Zero or three, yeah. or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you see that they have a bias and that they're, you know, and, and the jury needs to know that. Mm -hmm. Likewise, on the other side, I mean, the best witness that you can have is going to be a witness who's testified on both sides and who basically calls it as they see it, mm -hmm. who is neutral and will say, you know, sometimes they're on this side, sometimes they're on that side, but whatever the science, the, the medicine, the exam shows, that's what they say. Those are the witnesses that, that you love and that are really you know, worth, worth hiring. And the, I never realized this was, you know, like you said, a business. Oh. It is a literal business. People that make career, their living, yeah. um, you know, testifying and being an expert witness. And one of my first questions is how is this even allowed? Like how, how is it that witnesses can get paid for testimony and to say certain things or to kind of fudge, maybe not the numbers, but just, <laughs> just fudge their opinion a little bit. Because for, for me as an outsider that doesn't have experience, I would immediately trust any expert witness that's coming in. If they're a certified doctor, they've been training for a certain amount of years, you know, why would they lie for, you know, big business or, you know, repeat just, customers. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, you have to have expert witnesses if it's um, an issue that the jury can't figure out for themselves. And so you see that like in engineering where, you know, they can't calculate, you know, the force of the impact and, you know, the, the direction of the vehicles. And there's all these things about skid marks and yaw marks and mm -hmm. all of this um, that, that the average juror doesn't understand. But to figure out well, how an accident happens, you need that. Likewise for medicine, um, you know, what does this mean? 
mean? What is the what what do we foresee for this person's future based upon this diagnosis? And and the big one usually is is this injury caused by this accident or is it just coincident mm. or is it caused by something else? Yeah. So and and the reason that they get paid um, because like a, you know you have to compensate somebody for their time and it depends on what they get paid normally. So if you have some world renowned surgeon who's going to be making ten thousand dollars you know that day or that morning and you have them tied up in court then they are allowed to say i need to be compensated for my time now they do pick the numbers okay mm. and that's another thing that you know we always ask them well dr smith how much are you being paid to be here today <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. and i mean you know the jurors their eyes just bug out they're like what that's what i'm saying as a normal person you're like i i'm assuming this doctor's here for the greater good he's just saying it as it is but then you hear oh i'm getting paid 50k to show up this morning like yeah. I mean, that is insane. Well, but they're like, well, but if I was in the hospital, I would yeah. be getting paid X number of dollars for doing what I'm doing. And I had to take the time off and I had to prepare and I had to travel here and that sort of thing. Um, and then, but, you know, but but oftentimes both sides have the expert witnesses and the expert witnesses have to, they're, they're both getting paid. So some of that will even out. Yeah. Um, and as soon as, you know, you ask that question, Dr. Smith, how much are you getting paid? And the jury's all like, holy shit. Um, and then the other side gets up and say, you know, and walks them through that, well, doctor, you know, yeah. da, 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 how much do you? And, and I mean, I'm sure the jurors are thinking too, like, shit, man, I'm doing this for free over here. <laughs> They're not. They get, you know, depending on, they get paid like, I don't know what it is now, maybe $20 a day or something. I mean, <laughs> I can get a bag of chips from the vending machine. <laughs> you can barely pay parking, honestly. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Um, but it's your civic duty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people try and get out of it for a variety of reasons. And, and you know, the fact that they could be making more money doing something else is one of them. And, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but is there any off the top of your head, like, interest? interesting stories or interactions that you've had with expert witnesses because I can imagine with these mass tort cases where you have these pharmaceutical companies worth billions and you know how risking millions or billions depending on which case you know the the money that they're willing to give that doctor to say what they want I'm sure is, is pretty high up there and the things that that doctor is willing to say or do I'm sure is also yeah. shocking at times well I mean gosh I, I could probably <laughs> I don't know about specific stories but I, I can tell you that you know while I was doing a lot of car accident cases there was you know um, a, a particular uh, accident reconstructionist that was just there all the time and he was just such a jerk I mean it was just totally a jerk and I mean you know when you're doing a lot of these cases and they're being hired by the defense every time you see the them a lot. And so, I mean, I used to just joking, no, I mean, it wasn't a joke, it was reality, but I would kind of jokingly say it either in trial or in the deposition, hey, how are you doing? It's been, oh, what, like a couple days since I've seen you? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, how's, how's the family? You know, I mean, it's like, you, you, you know, you, you, I, I would kind of just joke around because, I mean, literally, I probably saw him more than I saw my spouse at that point. I mean, it was <laughs> good God, yeah. you know, I mean, who are you, you know, who, who, who are you shilling for today? Yeah. Um, and, and at that point, I mean, I knew exactly what he was making annually. I mean, and, and plaintiff's attorneys and probably defense attorneys as well share all of that information that we know about specific um, expert witnesses. I'm like, hey, so um, you testified for uh, Joe Smith yesterday on a similar case, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, one of the hazards of the profession, unfortunately. And um, and, and is there situations where maybe uh, an... an uh expert witness comes up and just says something they shouldn't have or just clearly not perjures, perjures themselves, but says something that is just like, 
unbelievable, right? That kind of just is a stain on their record. So they aren't using an expert witness as in the future because people are worried that, you know, that case or that specific interaction is going to be brought up. I think, yeah, I think that that can happen. I mean, the, the one big kind of embarrassing thing that you can do. So when they're doing this as a business and they're testifying like every day, twice a day, that sort of thing, they don't even remember what the hell they said last month or God forbid last year. And so one of the, and it's a lot of legwork, but I mean, you can get depositions of, you know, all of their testimonies previously, and you just plod through and you read and you read and you read anything that's similar and try to catch them saying like the opposite thing. And I did have one on a cardiologist on a case that I had where it was great. I finally, you know, this causes this, but wait a minute, you know, six years ago, you testified in John Smith's case and you said that this doesn't cause this, Um, you know, and they'll try and hedge and, oh, well, and the the facts are never exactly the same and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, they'll try and walk themselves out of it. But um, that's one of the hazards, I think, of being in that business for so long is that you don't even know what the hell you said. um, And and you're not going back and reading your testimony. And, you know, hopefully you're the attorney who is putting you on knows about something. It's like someone bringing up your high school text and be like, remember when you said this? And you just cringed to yourself like, oh, God damn it. (laughs) I wish that wasn't public record. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have to worry about that in high school. But (laughs) fair, fair. Um, that's interesting though. And, and I, and, and it was something that just kind of came to my mind because mm-hmm. that was something when I learned it, I had no idea just how much of a business expert witnesses were yeah. that people did that for a living. And then also that you could bring up previous cases and kind of just throw it in there, throw it in their face if they're just kind of wishy-washy depending on who's paying them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's part of, part of the skills that you develop as a trial attorney yeah. and, and the legwork and the prep, you know, I mean, know, know all of your, the, the back background on this witness before you cross-examine them. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that we still have a few more things to go through, so I want to make sure that we go over any updates on cases that we've discussed already um, that you may have or might have come up in the most recent week. Well, just a quick update before we get into kind of the, the, the topic that we had um, on tap here. But um, just, a, you know, we've talked so much about the autism and Tylenol, and it's just, it's a real hot topic. People have been asking me a lot of questions about that. Um, and one of the things that just came up recently is that people are like, oh, well, I didn't use Tylenol. I use Excedrin or I use Paracetamol. Well, guess what? Paracetamol is Tylenol. I mean, it's important to, yeah. you know, I mean, again, Tylenol is a brand name, which is acetaminophen. But, um, you know, it's particularly in other countries. I know I was speaking with my friends in Australia, and they were, they call it Paracetamol there. Oh. Yeah. So, and then, so the Paracetamol, Excedrin, um, and just in some other products, for example, um, NyQuil, DayQuil. Really? Yeah. I mean, if you, again, look at, look at what's included in there. It's oftentimes acetaminophen. The good old um, lean. Most Mucinex, Robitussin, Alka-Seltzer Plus. So, you know, it's, it doesn't have to necessarily just be that little Tylenol cap, you know, capsule or caplet that you're taking. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be an ingredient in one of these other products. And so people don't even realize that they had taken it. Yeah. And so the case, I mean, the case is you know, the way I call it is Tylenol and autism. Right. So even if you're not taking Tylenol, but you're taking some other type of brand or some other type of medication that has those, those, um, acetaminophen, yeah. Acetaminophen. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, within yeah, it. then the you, you can still term. count for the case. You can still Oh gosh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's that that is the the product. Tylenol is a brand name, and it's the biggest brand name. So it's like you know, it's like tissue. You know, it's a you know tissue paper. Yeah. Or no, no, what? Kleenex. I'm sorry. Tissue paper is Kleenex, but people call it a Kleenex, and that's actually the brand name. It's not yeah. the product. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I had no idea that that it um, also went over to other types of products as well. Yeah, it might be included in other products. Yeah. 
So we, we've gone over a lot, and I want to make sure that we kind of cover the, one of the new cases that we are currently handling before we close out today. Um, I don't know if you want to start and kind of introduce it. Sure. And actually, it's not a new case. It has been around for a while, but, but it's new for us to talk about. And I thought it was a good thing to talk about this time because last time we talked about uh, the Brazilian butt lifts and cryotherapy, so we were all about the cosmetic surgery gone wrong. Um, and I think we were even jokingly saying that, you know, the boobs were safer than the butts <laughs> um, and the guts. <laughs> so, um, but there are, and there have been over the years issues with breast implants, um, the silicone issues years back, um, but they've been relatively safe um, in more recent years, particularly since they've been using saline. However, um, there is a particular type of implant that has turned out to be dangerous, um, and those are um, these allergen textured breast implants. And the issue with these um, is that they are causing a type of cancer. Um, and the cancer is a relatively rare, they actually kind of figured it out from these cases. Um, and what it's called is breast implant associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So for sure, yeah, B-I-A-A-L-C-L. But I mean, the first part is breast implant associated. I mean, mm -hmm. this is very specific to people who have had breast implants. And, and again, it has to do with these textured implants as opposed to the smooth implants. So it's um, a particular uh, type of the Allergan implants. Um, and they have been recalled. Um, well, actually, they were withdrawn from the market by Allergan, so voluntarily. When this started coming up um, and they realized how very dangerous these are, they did withdraw them. Um, so that was in 2019. But as you may or may not know, when somebody gets breast implants, they plan on keeping them in for a long time. They usually say about 10 years, but in in, realist, in reality, it's usually more than 10 years. So there are a number of people who probably do have these implants currently um, and may or may not be aware of the risk that um, the, of the implants. And, and this the cancer that it causes, is this a strain of breast cancer? Actually, that's a great question. That was the, <laughs> you've had some good questions today. Um, it's actually not breast cancer. It is a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that targets the immune system. Mm -hmm. And they think that the, um, the, the, the texturized part of these breast implants are um, having more of an immune response in your body and that that's what's triggering this particular type of cancer. Okay. So, so your immune system, I'm sorry, I'm a little lost here on it. Your immune system is, is reacting to these textured substances of, of these breast implants. And then, um, you know, I'm not familiar with lymphoma as well. And is the immune system, like I know with autoimmune disease, your immune system kind of attacks itself. Is that what's happening here as well within the immune system? Well, yeah. So, so the, the implants are causing inflammation mm. and then the inflammation is causing the immune system to react. And you said that these have already been recalled, so they are not recalled, but taken off the market. So they realized, you know, that there was issues associated. What's the difference between recall and just being taken off the market? Well, the company, so the um, you you could have a mandatory recall or a voluntary recall, um, but a lot of times I think what the companies want to do is to look like they're doing the right thing for one, and also kind of keep it more on the DL, right? Because yeah. you know they just say, okay, this, and, and they could say, well, these aren't selling well, or this or that. You know, there's a variety of reasons why the companies will say well, we're just voluntarily recalling them, um, but this 
clearly was as a result of these diagnoses and this new type of disease that we hadn't seen before and that now it appears that it is, is associated with these particular types of implants. So they um, said, yes, we're taking them off the market. We're not selling them anymore. Um, however, all of the women who have them, yeah. you know, they've got this product in their body. And um, at this point, um, the FDA hasn't recalled hasn't recommended, hasn't said, go take, to go remove mm. these things. Um, some patients are choosing to prophylactically remove them before they have symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, quite frankly, if it was me, I would like get these things out of me. I mean, that's very, it's, it's, that's pretty scary. Yeah, um, but you know, that's not, it's, you know, everybody's going to make their own, own choice on that. And that seems like pretty much the biggest difference between taking off the market is because, you know, they, they have taken off the market. So anyone now getting any breast implants doesn't have to worry about that specific kind or that specific brand. Right. Yeah. Um, but the people that have it already, um, compared to a recalled situation where, you know, they would cover kind of the replacement and the surgery, additional surgery that will require to replace it. Now, if you want to get it taken out because it's not recalled, they won't cover it. It has to be on your own dime. Well, actually, I'm not entirely sure about that, but I suspect you know, and again, I, I don't know if Allergan is offering to pay for prophylactic removal. They may not. And in a lot of the circumstances, they say, well, not all of these are going to cause problems. Yeah. And so if you're having symptoms, I think it would be more likely that they would. Mm-hmm. But at that point, if you're having symptoms, you know, you're probably going to pursue that on your own anyway, or yeah. you, you certainly could. Um so, so I don't really know if they're offering to do that prophylactically. We could actually yeah. research that and 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 update. Um, but you know, again, they're they're saying not everybody gets this. And it's an, it's unfortunate. All of these cosmetic surgeries are causing, I mean, so many problems because, like we said last time, is that these people are coming in trying to. Um, you know, whatever, whatever they improvement they would like to see in themselves, they're pursuing that. And the last thing that they think is that they're going to, you know, with the previous cases have risk of death, but even with this, you know, it's a serious cancer that, that really, really messes up, um, you know, your immune system and and everything in there. Well, it is, it's very scary. And, and as we were, were saying, I mean, the risks that you're willing to take for a cosmetic procedure should be significantly different than the risks that you're willing to take for, um, you know, for some life-saving or maybe major life enhancing, um, procedure, you know, uh, joint replacements, those sorts of things that really affect your mobility. Um, you know, and, and not everybody who has these implants you know, just wants bigger boobs or perkier boobs or whatever. There, are, you know, a lot of people do post mastectomy, have reconstruction and implants. Mm. You know, after after a prior sur- uh, uh, cancer diagnosis, that sort of. Uh, I, I didn't even think about that. I couldn't imagine. You know, you already you go through breast cancer or whatever it may be. You go through some type of procedure where, you know, you, you have to pursue this for for replacement, and then you know, it leads to even more issues. Well, I mean, you've survived breast cancer. Now you have a new breast and now you have a lymphoma because you have that new breast. I mean, it sounds like a real nightmare. So, so what are the steps that someone should take if they're concerned that they might be having symptoms? I mean, even what are the symptoms with something like cancer? I would imagine it could be a variety of things. Well, actually, and again, it's not a, it's not the breast cancer. So you're not so much, you know, um, looking for lumps per se, but the symptoms tend to be swelling. Um, And and actually it's, it's not, 
there's a delay because, you know, you have this product in your body and it's starting to cause inflammation. Mm -hmm. And so it's a long process to develop the disease. And the the average time from implantation to diagnosis is about eight years. So, you know, you may have had these things for quite some time. And at that point, you're not thinking, you know, after the surgery, maybe you had swelling, tenderness, all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, eight years later, what the heck? So if if you now start getting any kind of swelling, pain, um, excess fluid, you'll see usually one that the breast that's affected will look larger than the other one, redness, um, lumps, those sorts of things. If you see anything at all going on, um, definitely get in to see your doctor. Um, If you don't know if you have these specific implants, you could certainly get in touch with your surgeon to find out so that you know what you're looking out for. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, any of these symptoms, you definitely want to get in and get treatment as soon as possible. Um, I think with any kind of cancer, you know, uh, the sooner you get treatment, the better the outcome, outcome pretty much is. And, and it's interesting too, seeing these cosmetic cases where with the Brazilian butt lift, the biggest issue was the way that the doctors were going about it. It wasn't necessarily what they were, you know, injecting into the butts. It was just the, the, you know, how deep they were going or what, if they were touching like certain muscles and veins and whatnot compared to this, where it is literally the device that's being put into the body that's causing the problems. Yeah, exactly. This is definitely the the device. And like with the cool sculpting, that was the actual device, although it's not something that was implanted. It was something that was used externally. Mm -hmm. But this is a device that's actually in your body. You know, you can't get it out without help, Um, you know, and, 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 and it's in there for presumably... Uh, you know, a good long time, 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. So um, these cases have been consolidated into a multi-district litigation um, that's based in New Jersey. But again, as we've said many times, um, the cases are can come from any state in the country. They just get consolidated there. Um, and if you think that you might have this type of implant, um, if you want more information, certainly feel free to contact us or another attorney who handles these types of cases. Um, but, and, and again, sooner rather than later, mm-hmm. particularly if you think you have symptoms, um, you want to get those treated. And if you do have um, this condition and you want to get compensated, it would be important to, to, to do that as soon as possible. Yeah, and these cases too, which I, I find them even more terrifying is when it's a delayed response, like the eight years after, because yeah. I mean, I guess with the lumping and whatnot, the swelling that is a tall tale sign that there should be no reason for that that late after the surgery but i would imagine there's other symptoms as well that um, you know, you're immediately not going to kind of make that connection to a procedure you had eight years prior. Well, and because lymphoma is not a breast cancer, yeah. so you there are many, many people who don't have breast implants who get lymphoma, and some of the symptoms are similar. And so there are probably situations where people don't relate it to the breast implants. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, and it took a number of years, about 15 years before they figured out, you know, this particular condition and what this condition was and that it was related to the breast implants and then named it, you know, breast implant associated. And I was going to say, so this is a very specific specific. strain of of cancer that is lymphoma connected to the breast implant. So you know if you have this strain, then it it is a, like, you know, tall tale sign that is connected. Well, if it's called breast implant associated, it's it's associated with your breast plate. It would be really weird if you got it and you didn't have breast implants. That's that's (laughs) true. That's true. Well, it's because a lot of these cases, I mean, you know, you you get um, you know you start having symptoms you start having issues but making that connection that it was actually that product or that mm-hmm. device that caused it is a lot of the time like a lot of the heavy legwork a lot right. of the work that is required but with this it's like you're diagnosed and you immediately know that there's a correlation there yeah hopefully I mean assuming your doctor knows what they're doing but yes I mean there's enough in the literature out there now and and uh, yeah 
that, that that should be the case. Well, I think we are coming to close for the show today. I want to see if there's any topics you wanted to kind of sneak peek for next week's show. Well, so next week we're going to talk about the CPAP litigation. And so that is the product that people use when they have sleep apnea. And so a lot of people, um, it, can, it can be a neurological condition. A lot of people who are overweight um, can have problems where they basically stop breathing while they're sleeping. So that's sleep apnea. And then, um, you know, millions of people use this product called the CPAP machine that helps them breathe throughout the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a massive recall on those. Um, and it's, it's been a pretty messy recall um, because they were not able to to replace the machine. So people were kind of stuck using a machine that they knew that actually could, again, cause cancer, but actually they need them to sleep. So um, we're going to do some update on that and just talk about the litigation. Mm -hmm. um, Something again, that affects a lot of people. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. As sad as that does sound, I am looking forward to a nice update there. Um, But overall, I think this was a great show. We did have a little bit of technical difficulties, but we got through it. We had some good (laughs) conversation. Um, Quick reminder, you know, if anyone does have any questions or concerns or just overall suggestions as well for the show, you know, we would love to hear from you. Just throw in the comments, Facebook, uh, YouTube, whatever, TikTok as well. Um, But with that being said, I think we're we're ready to close out. Thank you, everyone, for for listening and hope you have a a fantastic week. All right. And see you next time from Australia. Next time. (laughs) Prioritizing profits. Prioritizing profits. Dangerous drug and product cases.